0: Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Tuesday, April the 5th. Glad to have you along. We've got a great Chatterbox segment. We cover a good chunk of provincial and federal issues with Tasha Carradine, very familiar name and face to 640 Toronto listeners. And of course, San Greywall as well uh, from the pointer. We talk about Pierre Polyev and whether his rallies are a sign of bigger things to come or whether we're getting ahead of ourselves that he is the clear and obvious choice to be Conservative Party leader. We talk about COVID as well in context of everything that we're facing right now with dr suman chakrabarty about whether our wave is going to peak in a couple weeks and hospitalizations hold and we talk about that fourth shot a lot of people are going to wonder when nasi gives recommendations who's it for who most benefit from it and who should avoid it for the time being all that to come on the toronto today podcast which starts now let me start here we've talked about this concept of russia and the tipping point and when we have to put boots on the ground. I heard from people on text yesterday and, and a couple were quite adamant. We made a mistake staying so long in Afghanistan. Look what happened last summer. Well, the entry and the exit kind of are are interrelated. We're talking about different governments. We're talking about different eras. Uh, it was a messy departure, not necessarily for our soldiers, but to get people we were hoping to get out of uh, Afghanistan out. We also didn't expect the polar opposite of, of say, the Ukraine mentality to exist with the Afghanistan mentality. Oh, um, you're leaving? Okay, Um, there's a Taliban. Let's wave them down and see if they want to run things again. We surrender. That's absolutely what happened. And their major cities are intact. Their lives are ruined, and women's and children's lives are ruined, but they basically stayed intact. Many of you saw the images over the weekend. And we're still talking about them on Tuesday morning. You got a lot to compartmentalize and unwrap on a Monday and on a Monday show and when you're catching up with people. But uh, there's a lot of wider themes emerging now from this particular war. We are using phrases like genocide. We are using phrases uh, such as ethnic cleansing. And it's reminding people of, uh, of what happened when the former Yugoslavia started the war in the Balkans in the mid 90s. We don't have to go into the context of that uh, and we don't have to go too deep into the weeds with that idea but it was ugly it was beyond uh ugly and had we had the technology now that we have i mean we, we didn't even use the word drones back then in 1994 they may have even existed but not to the same prominence and we didn't get the footage that we get now but um this is turning and turning to a point where I think we are talking now about a military response. We are talking about boots on the ground for Western democracies. And I don't know how that lands with an awful lot of people. Um, I do know we probably need to do more than we've done. After six weeks cheering them on and applauding Vladimir Zelensky when he addresses our House of Commons and the prime minister of our country being just giddy, when we get a phone call uh, up with him, when he gets a phone call with him, like it's that crush you had on the girl in, in seventh grade, that's okay. Crushes are great, but um, painful, but great. And we got to do more than just the uh, word thing right now. I think people are looking at the Ukraine foreign minister yesterday talked about, I got like just just like gut-busting audio that I want to play you in this segment. Gut-busting audio from a lot of this. The Ukraine foreign minister documents the fact that that what he saw in one city over the weekend is going to be matched in many other Ukraine cities, including Mariupol. A tip of
1: the iceberg of all the crimes that have been committed by Russian army in the territory of Ukraine so far. And I can tell you without an exaggeration, but with great sorrow, that the situation in Mariupol is much worse compared to what we've seen in Bucha and other cities and towns and villages nearby mm-hmm. Kyiv. I demand from from our partners, on behalf of the victims of Bucha and the people of Ukraine, to take the most severe sanctions against Russia this week. This is not the request of Ukraine's foreign minister. This is the plea of the victims of rape, torture and killings, their relatives and the entire Ukrainian nation.
0: I think the weekend comes and you want to enjoy it, and you want to be out with family, and you want to see friends. And Easter weekend's coming. I know our family's got to travel to Ottawa this weekend um, for a, a, a cel- like a celebration of sorts. So we want to do these things. But again, the weekend invigorated my desire for Ukraine to get the Russians out. I'd sort of I hadn't become passive towards it. And it's a job, right? So you're checking in on this stuff. My wife documented the idea that I have to check in on this stuff a lot more than the average person does. And if you're listening to this, by the way, you probably do the same. You're interested in talk radio. You're interested in issues. You're interested in uh, in being smarter. So am I, okay? Well, like that's why these are often two-way conversations. You text the show, 289-975-1640. By the way, 289-975-1640. And I get a little smarter with our exchanges. It's good. Igor Novikov is the former... Uh, advisor to uh, President Zelensky. He's there fighting right now. And he documented the personal toll. I mean, if we think it's hitting us hard, you're in Ukraine and you're out there fighting. You you get dressed, take a shower, eat breakfast. Probably you get dressed at the end of that, whatever. And you're out there armed to the gills and defending your neighborhood. Like, I think we could picture doing that for maybe 20 minutes but it's an everyday process now for um, somebody that was a former aide to a politician. And he documents the toll it's
1: taking on his family, on his wife. My wife cries every night secretly. Like, you know, she, she hides in one of the rooms and, you know, I'll walk in and she'd be sitting there crying. And, you know, when I speak with her, I go, why? And she goes, like, well, how else do you process something, you know, as horrific as this. It will only get worse because I mean one can deal with explosions. One can deal with like, you know, physical or like military threats. But you know, the psychological threats are way worse. And I think, you know, uh, our country will need to do something about that because there'll be a lot of people who will have major psychological exhaustion. And whilst I'm on that note, I mean, I know what's going to happen next because I mean I've studied Russian propaganda for a while now. And I I think what Russia's going to do now is launch a major propaganda campaign to, you know, divert attention, and to mislead and to confuse, you know, the global audience. Well, he nailed
0: it. And that's exactly what's happening. Russia would like to address the U.N. Security Council today. We don't know if that's going to happen or not. But Russia wants to address the U.N. Security Council and document the uh, fake images in uh, the Ukrainian cities where you saw bodies everywhere strewn on the street. People with hands tied behind their backs who uh, were shot for no other reason than they were out. Now, I'm going to say this, and I mean this. Russia is committing war crimes. So is Ukraine. Ukraine is taking soldiers, no doubt about it, and killing them. They're not treating them as prisoners of war. They're not doing exchanges. They are killing them. Okay, That, that in essence, via the Geneva, Geneva Convention, is a war crime. Ukraine's committing them also. Russia's taken it next level, however. OK, we're not going to pretend that war is it. Europe has spilled an awful lot of blood in our lifetime uh, with the, the war in, in the former Yugoslavia, let alone a lot of people older than me's lifetime when we talk about World War II, And we don't have many people around who remember World War One anymore. But that happened as well. And they, they have something called collective amnesia. It's a comment that gets utilized. It's a phrase that gets utilized when you just forget how bad something was for the world, for the planet, for your country. And that happened clearly with that has happened clearly with the former Yugoslavia. Okay, there was there was, in essence, peace in Europe from the end of the Second World War almost until then. Although there was a Greek civil war in the late 40s. But I'm getting really nerdy here with my history and and whatnot. But here's what happened in, uh, in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina and Serbia. It was a war that absolutely forgot every lesson about World War II, what to do and what not to do. How do we do things in a diplomatic fashion? How do we solve solve a conflict with humanitarian tools instead of just killing each other in the street? That's all been forgotten right now. By the way, there's still a lot of talk among Russians about two things happening, Russians departing Russia en masse, and the idea could internally there be a coup to take out Vladimir Putin. Konstantin Kissin, who we played about five weeks ago on the show, who said it's Ukraine's war. They're going to have to fight it on their own. I don't I take no pleasure saying it, but we can provide them with weapons. We can provide them with arms. They're the ones that have to fight it. And maybe some aspect of that is still true. But he said this yesterday on a UK chat show and did document how many people, how many Russians are leaving Russia and the idea that they're just won't be any turning back for the world community here.
2: I, it, as, a, as a Russian, it is a very sad thing for me to say that, historically speaking, Vladimir Putin is not exactly an outlier in terms of Russian leaders. So the, to imagine that, you know, if he's ousted from power, he's going to be replaced by a Nick Clegg is a little bit optimistic. You might actually find that in the middle of a war, you end up with someone who's far, far worse. So that's the first thing to say. The other thing to say, as you, as you mentioned, I've been speaking to people on the ground in Russia and elsewhere. And one of the things I know is that, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of Russian people who are against what's happening are leaving the country. So uh, there's a neighboring country to Russia called Armenia. uh, And uh, some of my family are there at the moment. And they say that normally there's about three to four flights between Russia and Armenia a day. At the moment, there are 42.
0: Yeah. Armenia is not a big country, about 2.9 million people. That's no Russia. About, you know, 200 Ar- 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 Armenias could fit into Russia. I mean, geographically and almost population wise, maybe 150, let's say. But when we think about what's happening here, people are saying I had a conversation with a guy yesterday and we were saying, well, is everybody dead in these small towns? Where are the people that are alive? They're deporting people. They are deporting people into Russia. Mary Upal, by the way, a report yesterday uh, in The Guardian in the U.K., Documented up to 50,000 residents from Mariupol have been thrown into vans, put onto buses, and they get taken away by uh, under armed guard for the purposes of re assimilating in Russia. They send them to economically depressed cities in Russia forcibly. They get papers, new papers, new passports, and everything to become Russian citizens. Can you leave there? Of course not. Are you committed to your place of work? Of course, yes. That you cannot leave for two to three years in many of these cases. This is getting documented now. They take all your belongings. They take your clothes. They take your cell phone. They take all that stuff. And they drop you in a city that needs you to work for them. Can you negotiate your pay? Of course not. Vacation days, benefits? Of course not. Dental? I don't think so. That's what's happening to a lot of these people in Ukraine as well. And again, the question will have to be, when does the world step in? What does the world see as a line that's crossed? If it wasn't over the weekend, what would it take? Another weekend exactly like it? Because if we don't do anything more than we're doing, those are coming. Dr. Subhan Chakrabarty is an infectious disease specialist uh, with Trillium Health, and he joins us now. I love our chats. You always bring the straight goods. So here's you tell me if I'm wrong about this. Blow me up if you want. Um, We're seeing cases rise. Obviously, we've got uh, hospitalizations on an uptick. This happens this time of year. It's been well documented well before 2020. ICUs are holding right now. Now, there's a lot of norovirus out there. Um, It's blitzing families. And I know people are going to hospital with it, uh, anecdotally, who then test positive once they get into hospital because there's a lot of positivity with COVID right now.
2: How much of that do I have right or wrong? The hospitalizations, there's no doubt that there's up. And one thing I also want to mention, this is not unusual. So if we take away COVID, just go back a couple of years before COVID, we see a late bump in respiratory admissions, oftentimes uh, uh, in, uh, uh, in the last several decades. It's a pattern that we see, a seasonal pattern. Now, this time, yes, COVID is occupying that. But yeah, it's not unusual at this time of year to see norovirus. It is true, though, COVID is, you know, Omicron is extremely, uh, contagious, and we're seeing it all around. But the people who are being admitted to hospital—sometimes you know—hear that term for COVID or with COVID. A lot of it is with COVID, not directly causing their illness. We do have a couple of people in um, uh, ICU across the the province, but it's nothing compared to say the third wave, where our um, our wards and our ICUs were full. So I agree with you. I'm not going to slap you down. I'm going to give you a high five on that. One. I think that you you were you were smack on. Do you see a
0: timing pattern over the next two or three weeks uh, where you think we might hit that peak? We're starting to see it now in the United States. It's weird to think about, but we got to step outside our own sometimes GTA, sometimes Ontario bubble. It's hard for some folks to do, but we're seeing hospitalizations at their lowest level in the United States in ages. So they they hit this hard uh, in the big cities, especially with with cases And with an uptick in hospitalizations, not necessarily deaths, not necessarily really bad severe outcomes that land you in intensive care. Do you see us cresting at a certain point in time in the next few weeks as we head to head to May, let's say?
2: I absolutely do. And, and to be honest with you, I think it's going to happen sometime mid this month in, in April. Uh, you know, look at what's happened in Western Europe, uh, where you had multiple countries with their BA2 waves. And I've been using this term for a long time now the whiplash curves, fast up, fast down. And it happened. Almost the same time for so many of those countries, which uh, does you know suggest there's a seasonal element to some of it. Uh, it's clearly not everything. I expect that same thing to happen here as well. Uh, that we're probably going to see it a, a total of about you know two and a half to three weeks. Uh, but that said, is that uh, it's important to note that we didn't do anything to cause this. This is what respiratory viruses do. This is what COVID does. We have control over trying to minimize um, severity. The, the biggest thing we have, of course, the vaccine, we have therapeutics as well. But I think the idea that this wave happens, something that we did, I think it's important for us to take that out uh, as that's a huge misconception.
0: Mm. Dr. Suman Chakrabari is our guest on Toronto Today. I saw a couple uh, doctors, one pharmacist as well, document, well, you know what mask mandates do? They keep the flu away, they reduce influenza. And I thought about that. And I thought, all the conversations we were having about the lack of flu in the winter season of 2021 so 15 16 months ago was about lack of socialization lack of travel sometimes we our kids haven't been in school bringing stuff home haven't been playing sports and i thought that was the biggest reason like the way i i i simplistically think about it is if masks kept away influenza doctors who study influenza and masks Would have recommended doing that before 20 years into the 21st century to keep flu down. I'm sure they recommend it for some highly um, immunocompromised patients, depending on circumstances. We've probably all been on a flight in the last 15 years and seen somebody wearing a mask. But it's never no matter how sick we've been, nobody's ever suggested massive amounts of masking would keep the flu down. What's your thought on that?
2: It's a really good point, and I know this is a bit of a lightning rod area, but I think when you look at the evidence for um, the idea of like full community masking to try to prevent flu transmission. So this is flu, which is a virus, which is much less contagious than Omicron is, but it's still something that uh, affects a lot of people. Masks don't work very well. And we have multiple studies that show this. Uh, and when you do meta-analyses, you can see that there's not much uh, uh, evidence that it can really uh, change the trajectory of an epidemic curve. That's very important. Um, you know, this idea of, of flu not being around is very, very interesting. I do think it's multifactorial. For for sure, the lack of travel the lack of contact. I think that's part of it. But you have to also remember, we're seeing very low amounts of flu, even in places that didn't lock down, like Florida. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Florida has been wide open since what, May 2020? Uh, And they haven't had a lot of flu either. Uh, There's some interesting theories coming from a guy named Dr. Mike Osterholm. He's from, uh, I think in uh, Minnesota. I've watched Uh, him uh,
0: before on television. He's great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: He's a really smart guy. He talks about the idea of viral interference, uh, you know, viruses competing with each other, which is what they do do in the winter season, I think there's a, this assumption that when flu comes back, because we've lifted masks, which I don't think is the reason, but when flu comes back, it's going to be additive with COVID. It might not be. It might be something that actually just is something that competes, and the two viruses compete with each other. Either way, I think it's much more complicated than just the having to do with masks, and uh, it's something that I hope we get an answer to in the coming years.
0: I think there's some doctors that are saying, and I, I think you're one, I think Dr. Bogosh is another, Dr. Chagla is another that look and say, getting COVID is not necessarily inevitable, but eradicating it certainly is. And I think there's this concept that you can still bob and weave and dodge and avoid, and, and in essence, control the wave of a respiratory virus. Whereas the premise is the wave, you know, to use that surfing term has to be written out and you can use safeguards and, and sure you can mask if you like, and, and you can uh, make sure there are oral treatments available. Vaccination is the most obvious thing on the planet. To protect you from severity. But I, I still feel like we're still having, you know, some of the loudest voices out there, Dr. Chakrabarty, feel like they're talking about um, it's some moral failing to get it and that we can still Crush this thing down to nothing. And that's that's just not how viruses um, often work.
2: No, that's right. And I think that what we're reaping right now is what we sowed back in 2020 with this kind of fear based messaging. Now, to be fair, we, we didn't know what was going on. We certainly had to get, um, you know, rob people together uh, and unify people with, uh, you know, let's do this together and crush the curve. Uh, and we did the lockdown. But then I think since that time, you know, the, the virus has been moralized. So just like you mentioned, people getting the virus. Uh, They uh, are thought of as doing something morally wrong. We're still seeing that in certain um, uh, forms. Uh, And also just the idea that, um, you know, the the, the virus is something we can control. And that is still quite prevalent, especially if if you follow people on Twitter, Mm -hmm. uh, that we are here because of bad policy. Well, look outside of Ontario, you know, look at even the place that locked down the hardest in the world, you know, they're having like in China and Shanghai right now. But just having skyrocketing cases. Um, uh, South Korea, mandatory N95 masks. Uh, they uh, just recently abandoned their uh, their uh, suppression measures. I think that for people who had studied this and seen respiratory viruses uh, before, you know that you're starting with something you can't control, you can't suppress, you can't eliminate. And what the approach is to mitigate harm and decrease severity, which is, I think, something we've done very successfully. But I agree with you, Greg, that the message is not all that clear, uh, and it should be two years in.
0: Dr. Suman is our guest. When we talk about Paxlovid, obviously it's it's about access, it's about knowledge, it's about education. Are you hopeful we have a good path on, on this front in, in the next uh, in the next six months to get more people to know about it and also know who it's better for?
2: Absolutely. We, uh, so first of all, Paxlovid, I do think that uh, the key here is to decentralize it from the hospitals. But yes, it's something that works the best to help people who are at the highest risk of um, progression to severe disease, meaning hospitalization or death. From in, in uh, reducing that risk, and that's why it's meant for the people that should be targeted who are at that risk. So, a twenty-year-old who's otherwise uh, completely healthy and fully vaccinated doesn't need Paxlovid. It's important because the one-size-fits-all uh, approach to COVID, especially with the massive age gradient that we see of risk, where when you get above the age of 70, the risk skyrockets. We really have to tailor our approach. I do think that we are already, I think, doing a good job. We need to get the word out there, but I think a, a seamless system uh, that's decentralized is the way to go with it. and we'll get there.
0: Last thing for you, the, um, the fourth dose has been authorized in the United States. There's been some debate an issue that the, the CDC didn't really look at a lot of real world data uh, about it, but it's available for 50 plus in the United States. Um, we may get uh, recommendations from NASI at some point before middle of the month. What's your expectation for it and where do you see the conversation about the fourth dose going?
2: I, first of all, yeah, I, I'm, I'm dismayed to see how that was passed through uh, and this opened up with very little evidence. Uh, I think one thing we have to remember, it's clear that when we were in the emergency phase of the pandemic, we had to make decisions on the ground without a lot of evidence. But we, we have a lot of knowledge in infectious diseases, and that's how decisions were made. Now we have time, I think, before making any sort of broad recommendation. We need to have good data from randomized control trials before we do these things. There's lots of ways we can do this. There's tons of people who can get vaccinated, lots of potential for data. That's what we should be doing. I think the idea of, you know, the CEO from Pfizer saying something publicly, and then that becomes uh, the, the public health guideline to me that it's, it's clearly very shady. It shouldn't be that way. And I hope going forward, anything we do, whether it's an NPI, whether it's a vaccine, whether it's an oral agent, it should be backed by good randomized controlled data. And uh, we have a lot of time to do that uh, now that we're out of the emergency phase.
0: That's all I had. I, uh, I, I love our conversations. Thanks very much for, uh, for making the time for our audience. It matters to them and, and uh, they like hearing from you. So thanks for bringing, uh, bringing the straight goods for our
2: audience. Great to be here. Thanks so much, Greg.
0: Shiba Siddiqui joins me right now. You're gonna love that audio um, of, uh, of a young uh, prince and uh, we've got also, I won't, you know, there's no way to, to analogize this. Uh, the four-day work week, uh, Stephen Del Duca was on with John Oakley Friday. And you and I scratched the surface on it yesterday. We had a big work from home discussion. The four-day work week's really interesting. <laughs> I don't know if you support my Wednesday policy. I felt like I got Dave Bradley on board. Wednesday should be the day off and there shouldn't be 3 day weekends but we should just get a break like tomorrow we breathe and then we come back hard for Thursday and Friday. Wednesday should be that day. Your thoughts? Okay,
3: so you're you're in favor of a 4 day work week. No, I'm not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm saying if it was forced on me, I would I, know, I want Wednesday. I
3: Oh, I love the idea of a four-day four, four day work week. I mean, I don't mm. care what party is doing. I don't care what you're saying. I don't care what you're standing. If you're doing that, take my money. Take Why not money, three?
0: Why not just work two and a half? No. Why com- not- okay,
3: look. Look, we live in a capitalist society, right? This is the, our economy, economy, economy. We've seen this over the last two years. What has been prioritized more than anything during this pandemic is the economy. Schools were closed. People were getting sick there, but we got to do something. we got to keep the money up. we got to whatever it is. That's the society that we live in, and that needs to change. Um, and, yes, Stephen Duca did join John Oakley on Friday, and here's what he had to say.
4: This notion that the way that work is currently conventionally defined has been with us for all of human civilization and all of human history is not true. Work has evolved. We see work changing. We see a lot of people who are coming into their careers, there's lots of vulnerability, lots of precarious work out there. I think it it you know it requires us to constantly look for ways to improve the situation and to create that better work-life balance for people instead of folks who are exhausted, especially when you think about during COVID where people have been attached to their work, it feels like almost 24 hours a day because of the virtual platform. So we're gonna take a look at it. We believe in evidence, we believe in facts, we wanna make an informed decision based on the pilot that we are going to launch.
3: Okay, a work-life balance, which is, I think you hate those words. Well, I get no, it. I
0: don't. I I, I, may, I, realize I have to work to maintain it. No <laughs> one's just going to give it to me. And I'm not we saying have- you feel that way. Here's, here's where I, I don't think he's right in that he says, well, everyone's just exhausted. Wait a minute. I thought the exhaustion was going to be if people commuted again. I thought the exhaustion was actually being in the office. So he's saying we're all exhausted from COVID one. Why
3: can't it be everything? Why can't it be the fact that we've been in a pandemic? We've seen people around us getting sick, getting ill, elderly people, kids at home from school, um not be working from home, which is a whole new phase for everybody. Why can't it be everything? The well, fear of getting getting the virus for a lot of people, masking, not maxing, vaccines, not no not vaccines. It can be all of that. You're
0: preaching to the choir, but I'm saying it's you got let's say you add ten hours of commuting a week. Let's say you add to your mental stress spending a, a an extra $140 in gas a week, which is the more exhausting thing. It's doing that. It's not, it's it's take away the 10 hours of driving and the 140 bucks a month. And that's why people are trying to, are trying to wiggle out of the office calling them back. They are. Okay.
3: There is a Forbes study that came out. Am I out. right about that? No, because I'm there's not. A, there's a Forbes study that came out <laughs> on the four day work week, and it showed that a four day work week would increase employee satisfaction, company That's... commitment, and teamwork. But, and it also decreases stress levels, which would lead to your health. And, and doing a four day work week, it wouldn't harm their productivity or the company's output. So right there, the company's not losing money. You're a happier person. Mm. A lot of people want that. Like, Let's say the Friday. I'm against the Wednesday. No, absolutely not. I'd say the (laughs) Friday off. That would be amazing. And close the schools. Do it. We'd have to obviously work out certain ways of doing certain things, longer hours for certain people, different types of roles for other people. Like, It wouldn't work for us. We'd have to find a different way to contribute to the company. Well, what
0: if management decided it will work for you? Like, Gord, you can break this tire. What's the first thing you think many corporations think of? When the workday goes from five to four for those employees, what's the first thing that might come to their mind being the employer, not the employee?
3: Okay. Financially. You're thinking about financial.
0: Absolutely. So that, that leads to my work-life balance and my mental stress will go through the ceiling thinking I'm about to get a 20% pay cut. Is it coming this week? Is it coming next week? Is it next month? Is it when I decide to finally book a trip on Expedia and do what Ewan McGregor (laughs) says and go places instead of buying things? When will it happen?
3: No, I think that you'd have to contribute in a different way. You'd have to earn that extra day. That's what we would do. And really, on a Friday, it's always more relaxed. No, There's it's more not. Water. Yes, it not is. Not on it this show. Absolutely.
0: We have to have the best show of the week because then it sits with us for three days. And, I, and you and I have had enough Friday afternoon conversations going, why did we do that this morning? What a mistake <laughs> that was. No,
3: that, that's in the past. That's what I'm talking oh, about Okay, but it's true. But I think that having a Friday mm. off with your family, I think it would be wonderful for our mental health. The stress levels. The, I think it would just be great to connect with your family, to connect wow. with your friends. Uh, I think you got I would Saturday and Sunday see- for
0: that. <sighs> and <sighs> as 7:30. I said, your family doesn't your family doesn't want to spend as much time with. with not saying you specifically. Fine,
3: Th- your friends. <laughs> friends, drop <laughs> your kids off at their friends' houses and go see your friends for a drink. <laughs>
0: Or five, depending on if you're stressed <laughs> out about getting a 20% pay cut, you're going to need more than one drink to get through it. I know good radio. When I sit in the car and I need to go in Shoppers Drug Mart for things, but I'm listening to the interview instead. I know it's good talk radio, and that's the last time uh, Kelly Cotrera had Tasha Caradon on, principal at Navigator Limited, senior advisor on Charrette campaign. I left the I let those optimum points just pile up. I was really eager to hear you talk with uh, with Kelly when you were talking with her a few weeks ago. It's great to have you on this morning.
5: Oh, well, thank you so much.
0: Absolutely, and San Graywall uh, joins us once again, editor of the Pointer. San, I would, I'm, you know, you can convince me to give up some optimum points by listening to you, and and uh, we'll see how it goes today.
4: <laughs> Too much pressure.
0: <laughs> it's a lot. Are you kidding? I love walking the aisle. I used to do that before COVID. I'm like, let me kill twenty minutes here. Get out of, you know, toddlers in the house. Let's get out of the house and walk the aisles of Shoppers Drug I feel more comfortable there. Than a grocery store there's more goodies in there speaking of goodies tash let's start with you ontario feels like this happens right a lot of goodies being promised to chase down votes the ndp says we're into the idea of universal mental health care the conservatives say we won't go as deep as that but we'll save you six cents a liter at the gas pumps for a period of six months Are you spotting, is this an excess of provincial promises that we didn't necessarily see in the last federal election? And by the way, the promises, are they just getting going? We've got two and a half months to go.
5: You know, every time we have an election, we see a ton of promises. I find it interesting. um, The Ford government has definitely paved the way in terms of promises for things, you know, even for employees, uh, things that they would have gone much further than than they probably would have in the past. We're seeing, of course, lots of promises on the other side from the other parties as well um, with, you know, uh, big price tags. And we're seeing it federally, too. We don't even have an election. And the budget's coming up and the deal's been struck between the NDP and the Liberals. It's keeping people happy, I hate to say it, with their own money. Uh, This is not anything new. And so for this election, I am not completely surprised. Um, I think that, you know, the the government thinks that the economy is going to be in a good place. They'll be in a measure to deliver this stuff. Of course the proof will will come. We'll
0: see. Sankin some of this, can I make the case some of it is a natural, evolving pivot of of opinion and policy? I look at at how the provincial government is with electric cars, right? They see that we've gone through a pandemic. They see what's happening with the price of fuel and, and with the cost long term of, of an over reliance on fossil fuels. Can I make the case that something like electric cars and 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 pushing them out to the public's more important in twenty twenty two than late twenty seventeen, early twenty eighteen when they were campaigning? painting?
6: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, but when we look at EVs for example, and I and I'll point a finger at the Ford government the PCs, you know, mm-hmm. if if you really want to increase EV sales and take up of EVs for all the benefits yeah, you know, we should be looking at things like subsidies and rebates. They they cut them, they eliminated mm-hmm. them. Um, and I know there's been a lot of talk recently about how sales have still gone up. Well, they would have gone up way more dramatically. And just another point too, it's interesting that the goodies uh, are so clearly being targeted. You know, at at partic- in particular places in the province, the PCs picked up almost 50 seats, and almost all of them were in the 905. And it's no big surprise that their their gifts are basically to drivers that they're, they're banking on 905 commuters we're going to like, you know, the license plate stickers being eliminated and a little bit of help at the pump with the recent announcement on gas taxes. And then at the same time, the Liberals and the NDP going with the minimum wage, bumping it up at least a dollar, maybe even two or three bucks in Toronto. And, and so it's no surprise to me that they're, they're basically trying to target the seats that they're either trying to win or win back.
0: Tasha, it feels like that federally and, and provincially. Sometimes the uh, the goodies go to to swing votes. They don't necessarily go to who's going to vote for you already. I, I, I'm sure that that the liberals and, and NDP especially look in downtown Toronto and look in some of the areas and think. We've got those votes tied up anyway, but there's never a guarantee, is there? And and I think, you know, Sam makes a good point about that 905 voter. That's the wall the liberals um, are are holding strong with federally that hopefully, at least for the conservatives, the next candidate. I know you're hoping it's John Chirac is able to break through and, and have better results than Andrew Shearer or Aaron O'Toole did.
5: Yeah, definitely. The nine o five is kind of like the holy grail, and that's <laughs> what Sam just mentioned in terms of the you know, the gas gas tax reduction provincially. That's one way for Doug Ford to say, "Hey, you know, you commuters, even though people may be commuting a little less than previous to the pandemic, but they still commute." Um, it's it's something that people will care about a lot. It'll also care about in riding. Um, in rural parts of Ontario, where you have to drive to, gas use is, is not, you know, electric vehicles are not really an option for many people in certain areas. So you have to sort of mm. balance the two. And that's what you're seeing there. I think, of course, um, for the federally, yes, you're seeing a contest where in the leadership for the Conservative Party, um, you want to attract or show that you can attract those voters. They have to be pulled back, though, first into the party, because the party membership is very concentrated in rural uh, canada it is concentrated in western canada it is not as prevalent in urban and suburban canada and that is one of the problems the parties face that's where the leadership candidates want to appeal and that's where yes obviously i'm hoping that joshua ray will will have serious success i think he will there's other candidates too like patrick brown who you know, has a lot of strength in the GTA. Mm. Everyone's going to be jockeying for positions.
0: Yeah, and, and it's great to see Jean Charet out in Halifax. Uh, obviously had a COVID-19 mm-hmm. positive diagnosis two weeks ago. Uh, believer in the vaccines as many of us are and not panicking and right back out there uh, and out there um, uh, again let me keep this with you tasha because i really want to get sans opinion on it also david aiken our own david aiken tweeted i've been covering leadership races provincial and federal elections for nearly 20 years the crowds pierre Polyev is attracting to his rallies they're off the charts do his opponents let alone his liberal and ndp opponents have an answer to this This is David, David, you know, speaking anecdotally, is this and with some experience, is this really early days to read too much into this? Like we we haven't seen or heard much from uh, Mayor Brown. And and I know Jean Charest has got a got a big strategy uh, to draw crowds in the summer at the stops that that he needs to get votes in.
5: Well, you saw lots of crowds turning out for Maxine Bernier during the last election as well. A thousand Mm -hmm. people in Calgary, hundreds of people in Chatham, hundreds of people in smaller centers. I suspect those are the similar crowds that are turning out for Pierre because the message is the same. It's about freedom, and that was the message that he ran on. Um, You know, the People's Party did better than expected last time, but they didn't win any seats. So the real question is whether those people turning out to rallies are going to become members of the Conservative Party and vote. And here's the thing. You can't be a member of two parties. So if they are a member of another party, say the People's Party, they can't Mm -hmm. become a member of the Conservative Party unless they rip up card number one. Will they do that? Uh, what's their motivation? Who knows and under the point system you also have to have support across the country again this goes to you have to have support in the GTA, you have to have support in Quebec so I think it's really early mm-hmm. days to say what this means. I agree. It's it's very impressive crowds. No question. But the real issue is, mm-hmm. will that translate into support?
0: That's Tasha Carradine, senior advisor, by the way, on the Jean Charest campaign. Sam Graywall is with us as well, editor of The Pointer. Uh, Sam, I want to ask you about Patrick Brown, but give me your thoughts quick on on Pierre's rallies. It, it is really early and we often see this with U.S. primaries. Uh, Joe Biden was dead in the water after Iowa and New Hampshire. Like we we, we really make a lot of mistakes, sometimes two ways, judging things via social media poll uh, in terms of how voters are going to go. Seventy five percent of people don't even bother with social media. They're probably the smart ones. And, uh, and and documenting that it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint. Anytime you're trying to become leader of a party. Yeah.
6: But in 2016 with Trump, people underestimated him and they, you know, basically explained away the huge crowds that he was drawing. Everyone loves the front run- runner. And I think Pierre Poliev is definitely the front runner. I don't know that these large crowds are going to translate. Like basically they need uh, as many of the hundred points in each uh, riding as they can get. So how you go about Patrick Brown is ba- basically has a strategy of meeting with much smaller groups, in each of the right well, as many of the ridings as he can visit, he's picking off you know, certain key regions. He meets, meets with basically the ethnic communities and small groups, you know, the Muslim community, the Sikh community, the Filipino community, the Vietnamese Canadian community. And that's basically been his strategy for quite a while. I don't think Paul- Paulieff uh, tries to target uh, groups and voting blocks in the same way. But I do think the size of the turnout is indicative or it illustrates quite a large amount of support for him.
0: You wrote about Patrick Brown on on the pointer. Um, you got genuine concerns about his leadership ability. Lay, lay some of that out for us.
6: Yeah, I mean, I do. First of all, I, I think all of the parties need to get this straight. If you have accusations of sexual misconduct that are standing, uh, even if they haven't been proven in court, even if you know criminal charges haven't been brought forward, whatever the case might be. There needs to be some policies, and I guess I get it, it's, it's up to each individual party, but those, those allegations are outstanding, uh, regardless of the recent news with the settlement with CTV. That had nothing to do with the primary allegations. Th- those have not been withdrawn. CTV still stands by them. The two women, I believe, still stand by them. So that, that's an issue of mine. But even beyond that, it, you can read the article, but his track record in terms of nomination problems, accepting a $375,000 loan from a PC candidate when he was the PC party leader. And the, the Ontario Ethics Commissioner, the Integrity Commissioner, had to basically come down pretty hard and say he violated those rules blatantly. He said, basically, he said he lied about it. He intentionally withheld that information. To me, these are maybe borderline disqualifying you know, pieces of behavior that I think you know, need to be considered.
0: We've got about a minute here for, uh, for each of you. Tasha, let's go here, Ukraine. Uh, we just couldn't turn our televisions off from it. If anything, it, it re-energized my desire to see more than just sanctions, more than just talk, more than just you know people putting blue and yellow flags on their social media account. Do we have the appetite? I've, I'm hearing in the United States a little more of a rumble for it, and maybe that's because it's America. Do we have the appetite in Canada to get involved in a military fashion? We won't go first, but would we follow others for putting boots on the ground in that country?
5: If we put boots on the ground, it's World War Three, And some people say we're already in this. Um, mm-hmm. And it's inevitably escalating because Putin will not stop with Ukraine. Uh, and I, I hate to say it, but I don't think he's going to stop with Ukraine either. So it, would it be an intervention now or an intervention later? I don't think anyone wants to see it, but... Mm. At the end of the day, if these horrors keep mounting, the pressure will continue. I don't I don't hear it boots on the ground here yet. But, uh, you know, more pictures like things we've seen in Buka and uh, the it's just it's horrific. And I think it reminds mm. people how horrific war is, which will be the case if we put boots on the ground, too. It's a no win situation.
0: Sand, give me a minute on this. What do you think?
6: Yeah, we we need to exhaust all of the other tactics. The U.S. just sees the first large asset, a big, huge super yacht of a Russian Mm -hmm. oligarch. There's other incredible pressure being placed on Russia and perhaps the people who influence Putin, who maybe even have... Uh, Some control over Putin. Uh, I I really think that uh, every, like, you know, ratchet up these sanctions, go after the oligarchs, go after his own assets, make it untenable, make it economically unviable for him and, and, and squeeze Russia in every way possible. That has to be the approach.
0: Thank you both for coming on today. Have a great afternoon. You
5: too. Thank you.
0: You got it. Tasha Carradine and uh, San Greywall. He's an editor of The Pointer. She, a senior advisor on the Charae campaign and principal at Navigator Limited. Okay, so this is Tiffany Cross, right? An MSNBC host. And uh, the headline caught her eye yesterday as she uh, said, I've heard a lot of takes on Will Smith and Chris Rock, as have you, over eight days. White people don't understand the slap. And I'm like, oh, Okay, well, I'm I'm willing to listen and learn. I uh, <laughs> I'm not an expert in not being white, so explain it to me.
3: Well, let's. Are we going to play? Are we going to hear the clip? Yeah,
0: yeah. You want to do that? Yes. Here's Tiffany Cross uh, from MSNBC. She's interviewing a couple panelists here, but this is her perspective uh, about how only only black people understand what happened here.
3: I'll try to put this in context for um, you know our, our, our white fellow countrymen as best I can. And really, truly uh, black America, there is a commonality amongst us all. And if we went to a white person's home and it was their family dinner and we were sitting there at the table and the mother hauled off and slapped the father. And everybody at that table has an opinion. You know, the sister is like, mom, you always do this. And the brother is like, I can't believe you guys are doing this. And dad is like, you're terrible. If I weigh in as the guest in this home and I say, yeah, you guys are terrible. Everybody's like, I'm sorry, when did you you get an opinion. Okay. Okay. So a couple of things going on there. First of all, I don't know how many conversations you've had about this incident. Now it's even passing and it's gotten so much deeper. There's so many layers to what happened at the Oscars that night. But black communities are having very different conversations about the Will Smith incident than white communities are. This is this is something that I've seen in all circles, be it online, be it with my social circles. Um, and Martin Luther King is known for asking, who's the most disrespected person on the planet? Do you know the answer to that? I don't. The black woman.
0: Black woman, okay. Yes,
3: and who is the most feared person on the planet? The black man. Okay. So this is something that this instance has brought this forward. So there are many women in the black community that think that what Will Smith did was beautiful. The way that he stood up for his wife. The way that he guarded her, he he didn't care who it was, where he was, what he was, do not say anything about his wife. And he'll do what he needs to do to get his point across. Uh, and there are a lot of people who disagree with that, uh, that are not in the black community. Uh, have you read Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's take on it? He came forward. Absolutely. And
0: he wrote about it. I retweeted it last week. Absolutely.
3: Yeah. yeah. So he said that systemic racism in America is characterizing blacks as more prone to violence and less able to control their emotions. But he
0: crushed Will Smith for that, for perpetuating yes. that myth that That's you, you cannot control your anger and you'll go to a violent means to settle a conflict.
3: He's saying that Will Smith is continuing to give this impression of, of the black community and black men who are also the most feared people on the planet. So it's, it's really, there are a lot of layers there. And Tiffany Cross, I don't know if she, I don't know how, how much she improved that. She was thinking about what she was saying when she was saying it. There are definitely different conversations happening though in black and white households, or I should say black communities and non-black communities.
0: It's a weird one too, though, because she, It's not a dinner table and it's not a private environment. It's the Oscars. And you know when you're in public. You know, I I mean, I'm sure my wife and I talk differently to each other in private. Whether, Despite the deep relationship and the deep love, we will talk differently to each other in private than we will, obviously, in public. And I think we know when we got to take, either of us know, when we got to take the temperature down. Look, again, I always say this. It's really interesting when you're at a dinner party of eight people or you're at a backyard barbecue and a couple starts even a mild argument. Everybody kind of stops and thinks, is this going to stabilize or will this escalate? And sometimes it's quite interesting when they ab- they disagree, <laughs> right? Could be politics, could be where the couch should be in the living room. It could be, are we buying a new car? It could be parenting. It could be a million issues, but you're really interested when it happens.
3: Oh, we're all watching. Right. We're all watching. Yes. But it doesn't give us the, the right to give an opinion because we are in their household. We might gossip about it on the drive home or later that night as we're in bed. But this happened on a world stage, not in someone's private home. So we, I think we're all going to talk about, it. we're all going to assess what's happening. Uh, I'm interested to see what happens to his career from here. Uh, even his relationship. I wonder how Jada felt about that. Uh, and there are a lot of women who are, they think that they wish that their man would stand up and do something like that for them if they were ever in that situation.
0: You, sure. Uh, but but the phrase, let me ask you, the phrase, white people need to sit this one out. How's that land for you? How, and, and could you say that about any other race on the planet?
3: That's a great question. <laughs> and and wh- whether white people need to sit this one out, I don't even know if it's just white people she's referring to. I think she might even just mean... Anybody who's not black, because the black community, generally speaking, is having very different conversations than the rest of uh,
0: us. They are, but she's smart enough not to say any other race <laughs> because she'd be in more trouble for it. So we've both answered the question, <laughs> right? You wouldn't say that about any other uh, any other ethnicity uh, except us. So again, you know, I'm I'm willing as a white person, I'm willing to take my uh, take my talking to and someday we'll rise to the level of being able to say things that other races are able to say, Sheba. I'm looking forward to that day. It's, it's
3: probably but decades that goes, away. That's for anybody. That's for any week. We, there are certain words that we can't say. that's not what no, she said. That's not what she said. But to your point, there are certain terms mm. that we can't say unless you're part of that race, whether you're singing along with a song or whatever.
0: <laughs> yes, which, uh, again, I tell my kids, I'm like, that's a song, but you can't sing it uh, in the car right now. Maybe later. Like, I don't know if we're getting this wrong in the media, how many people message me and say, yes, we've got a cost of living crisis. We don't talk about rent. We don't talk about making ends meet. We don't talk about prices enough right now. Um, And a lot of that COVID discussion, I will say it again, it ain't everyone's number one priority um, to avoid it. People are struggling to pay the bills, they're struggling to make really important Decisions, personal decisions, but also financial decisions. They're all interrelated in any household. Uh, Anthony Fury joins me uh, right now. It's a little, I tell—I used to tell journalism uh, broadcast uh, students this. I'm like, you know, sometimes you got to go outside of the city of Toronto and you might have to work for this amount of salary. And you I had friends work in Swift Current and Yellen, and they look at me like I've got four heads. They're like, really? Doesn't everybody start off making 80 grand in Toronto writing and broadcasting? And I'm like, no, no, I don't know where you got that idea.
4: Yeah, and hopefully an anecdote that can can bring a number of these parts together, Uh, Greg, I took the kids to Great Wolf Lodge the other day, which is in Toronto, uh, of course, and uh, I got to tell you, it's like a thousand people didn't even know COVID had ever existed. There's no sort of acknowledgement of it, and I got to say that was refreshing, because one thing I've been really upset about, you and I have talked about this, how kids have missed out on so much the past two years, Mm -hmm. and this is a place where kids can just have fun and and celebrate and i know there's this line that people say on social media the pandemic isn't over just because you say it is but at the same time when we're talking about low-risk people who just want to live their life it's also true that the pandemic isn't still going on just because you angrily tweet it's still going on if there's people out there uh living you know several weeks after the mask mandate has ended and, and and the activities they're doing don't really cause any problems for them and their families you know you've got to allow them Uh, their liberties and and right Mm -hmm. now people are looking and saying how can I how can I enjoy the summer with all of this inflation you know we've had two summers where life was pretty much canceled we have wanted to enjoy Mm -hmm. things we haven't been able to Uh, But we want to find cost effective things to do in Ontario to to give our kids some life again.
0: I know you saw the picture of uh, and I'm not bringing this up a swear uh, to dig in on on Elizabeth May, who's covid positive right now, 67 years old. But she's kissing a hundred and three year old decorated war veteran. And the conversation's more about that hundred and three year old fought for Canada in world wars. What's the amount of time that we should isolate him and try and protect him and make him do this and make him he's one hundred and three and he fought in the Second World War. And then I, I and then like what's the sliding scale where we go down and we say, why should a 90 year old keep being forced to do things? At 25 months into this, why should an 80 year old and you and I have the same arguments for our kids? How long? How long do you want five year olds to perpetually wear masks every? I'm at a walk in clinic with my kid last night, and uh, a four year old and a two year old, a four year old and a two year old are waiting same amount of time I am for an appointment, 80 minutes, and I'm like, it just, it just doesn't feel right. I know in my heart and soul what doesn't feel right, and that doesn't.
4: Yeah, and when it comes to the 90 year olds, 103 year old, how many years does this person have left? There were at least. Two news stories about 12 months ago about persons who lived in retirement homes or long-term care facilities who were in their 90s. They chose to end their lives prematurely rather than be forced into their rooms and not able to see another family member for for however long. They didn't know how long this Mm -hmm. thing would last. Two documented stories. What a tragedy. The fact there were two that made the news makes me suggest that in actuality, there are probably more than two persons in Ontario who made that choice. And these are people who clearly felt I, w- I may only have a year left anyway. I want to spend that living seeing my grandchildren. And and we made that against the law. When I think about people who said, I wanted to go see the, my dying loved one, sure, I may not be the one name on the paper that says I'm their immediate connection, so it can show up, but this person matters to me. I want to see them. They want to see me. And we had rules that said, you can't do that. And I said, said before, the very first piece of Western literature, the, the Greek tragedy, uh, Antigone, is about how you do not violate end-of-life rights. That is how sacred that is to the human condition. And we violated that a year ago. Mm-hmm. So take precautions, protect the room, show up the health care system, let's do all of that. But we we need to talk about some of the very very primal wrongs that 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 we enacted the past two years i think
0: i I got no time for people operating from a a may 2020 playbook you can't do that at at this point in time first of all it makes no scientific sense and as we've documented so teresa tam says we should do this eileen DeVilla says we should do this lawrence lowe said we should and somehow you followed their every word like 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 from the bible for 23 and a half months but now they're wrong now they're well, now, now they're the enemy because they don't they don't agree we should be, you know, uh, having six year olds, uh, um, you know, have yeah. their freedom, their, 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 you know, their learning and their socialization compromised for yet even more months. And, and, and again, interminably, there's no there's no metric that I've seen anybody give. When would it be OK? Give me that number. Stephen Del Duca, Andrea Horvath, anybody, even the even the provincial. Give me the number that makes it OK. And they don't give you the numbers.
4: And, you know, the TDSB, they put out some uh, new information just yesterday about all the things they're going to do to address learning loss. And the other challenges that they know kids have faced the past two years, because you have noise from the teachers' unions, noise from Duke and Andrew Horvath, yes. But when you speak to kindergarten teachers just out and about, You know, friends of friends, meeting up with them in the playground, they know what's also going on and they know there are hardships. Teachers are talking amongst each other. Uh, I think we've seen very balanced comments recently from uh, Colleen Russell-Rollins, who's the head of TDSB, uh, really going, look, we've got to have choice involved here. And, yes, we've got to deal with mm. some of the challenges that kids have also faced. I mean, we do have learning loss. There have been harms.
0: Anthony Fury from the uh, Toronto Sun our guest. I know you're uh, really excited about the possibility of Tiger Woods playing in oh, the Masters. Gosh. I've oh. never I've never been a huge Tiger fan and actually it, it Well,
4: let's w- just end this conversation right now. <laughs> <but sir. laughs>
0: that said, that said, I, but but remember at times when he came back off of 2009 and the car accident and the infidelity and everything, he really did we didn't know how the galleries would react. We didn't know if he could win his way back into the public hearts. It takes some time. And it's not like he did a gigantic mea culpa or anything. People just accepted that it's Tiger and they started rooting for him again. But yeah, it it my gosh, I can't imagine CBS uh, and and their desire to have him playing Thursday. And then you got to make the cut and be playing Saturday. That's another kettle of fish entirely is to play well enough for 36 holes to make it to Saturday and get that weekend audience.
4: Look, and you make a good point. One kettle of fish is the personal choices he's made and whether or not he should be a moral leader for our youth. And that's conversation, and and you don't have to be 100% of a fan of of that Mm. aspect of his life, for sure. But, you know, this is a a, a player who uh, one of my golf teachers said to me, when Tiger is doing well, golf is doing well. People want to play when Tiger is playing. People get excited for the game when Tiger is out there. And, And, you know, Tiger Woods' father said a lot of, really over-the-top things. He was quite a character. Mm-hmm. And in that, in that documentary that came out recently on, on his life, it begins with Earl Woods basically giving a religious invocation about how Tiger Woods would become a religious figure. And i got to tell you, for, for agnostics out there, for atheist sports fans out <laughs> there, the return of Tiger Woods after this accident probably is the closest thing to a, a sports religious <laughs> experience they're going to mm-hmm. have in terms of the fact that to make this sort of comeback... I mean, Greg, you're better positioned to say this than I am, but I, I think this could if if he wins the Masters. And people have said he would not compete unless he thought a win was possible, and de- and definitely in the cards. Is he hasn't decided whether he's going to compete or not. If he wins the Masters, I mean, you tell me. I think this has got to be one of the greatest comebacks in sports history. It
0: already was, right? When he won in 2019, yeah. it already was. So post this car accident, he's he's almost an entire year removed from this car accident where they said, well, you're lucky to keep your leg. And the last news conference he did, he had that noticeable limp. So um, I'll tell you what, yeah, uh, if he's even playing Saturday, um, I, I think we're talking four or five times the audience uh, that would be there otherwise. I got a blast. Absolutely. I want to, ro- I, wa- you, I, I yeah, I want you to enjoy that. Uh, Anthony Fury, Toronto Sun, joining us. Thanks so much for listening to Toronto Today. We always appreciate it. Sheba Siddiqui, Dave Bradley. Gord Rennie and myself will be back tomorrow with a live show. You can hear it on the Radio Player Canada app or by logging on to 640toronto.com. Thanks so much.